Welcome to episode 46 of the Draft Lab Podcast, brought to you by MTGAZone.com. I'm your host, Josh Phillips, aka J2S Josh, and per usual, I'm joined by all-time 17 Lance Trophy leader and well-known Gator philanthropist, Chris Palmiotti, aka Florida Mun. This week, we're going to be discussing what qualities make a draft format good or bad. How's it going today, Chris? Going well, going well. Interested to dive into our takes on... Formats that have been pretty great and special and formats that have pushed more people towards constructed. (laughs) What was that about SNC? Yeah, that might be one of those. (laughs) All right. Weekly update. Everyone has been playing Theros Beyond Death and it has been interesting. All the people who remember how to play the format have a huge advantage over all the new people. This leads to draft tables where one to two people are playing a solved format while the rest of the table is at pre-release. Yeah, there's been a lot of just I've run into decks that just have like multiple on color rares. I think it's like there isn't great fixing, really. There's some you can make work, but in best of one, it's hard to make like the multicolor decks work. And so I think what happens is people are more likely to just pass off color rares. And I've gotten pick eight, the tectonic three, four, four drop that like deals three damage or lets you exile two cards whenever it's targeted or attacks. And I'm like, oh, pick eight, pretty busted rare in red. Cool. I'll take that. It's cool when you're the deck that has it, but it's not so fun when you're the deck that's against Dream Trawler and Cure Best to Sea Gods in the same deck. You don't enjoy that? No, no. Are you ready for a pack one, pick one? I am. Well, that's too bad. We're not going to do that this week. Oh, I thought we were going to do like a Theros pack one, pick one. No, by the time we get this out, there's going to be a couple more days of Theros. And let's be honest. No one cares about SNC anymore. Why don't we go ahead and get into what makes a draft format good or awful? Number one thing we're going to talk about, bombs. I actually want some bombs in the format. It can add enough variance to keep that fire in the relationship. They just shouldn't be game ending. OMG, WTF, we were playing a game, but then this happened level bombs. I would prefer them to be mythics because then they pop up less often and you're highly unlikely to run into someone playing multiples. In my opinion, Dreadfeast Demon would have been fine at mythic. Inspiring Overseer would have been fine at Uncommon, etc., you know? Yeah, I totally agree with that. There are some rares where, like, my measurement of a good rare is two things. One, it's appropriately rated in terms of Mythic Rare Rare, right? Like, it should scale, where if it's game-breaking, crazy, easy to cast, goes into any deck, it should be Mythic. And two, I like rares that are powerful, as long as you do some work to make them powerful. I don't like rares that you can just literally throw in any deck when you open an impact three and be like, oh, perfect. This is going to help me win every game I play. I want rares that it's like, okay, this rare is really good if I have cheap creatures on curve that I have to make sure I like have a critical mass of one drops and two drops. Or I like a rare that's like a two for one as long as you meet specific conditions. Something like, oh, what's the one black black rare that lets you like exile a creature and bring back a creature if you have enchantment artifact? Soul transfer? Yeah, like soul transfer was a very strong card. Maybe not the best it could have been in that format, but like it had a condition to turn on its like powerful mode. And I was like, okay, I like rares like that. But rares that are just like do anything in your power to draw this card. And once you do, you win the game. It's like, that's no fun to me. Dream Trawler, for example. All right, next thing is speed. Some people love super grindy formats, but most people don't have the attention span to sit through a 30-minute game after 30-minute game. 
it's just mentally exhausting at some point. On the other hand, no one wants to play games that are over on turn five when one player had no chance. Fast games are completely fine as long as decisions got to be made during them. Yeah, I think this actually ties pretty well with the bomb discussion where I think I really enjoy grindy games where like every small incremental advantage adds up to you eventually win too many of those in a row or if the whole format is that is kind of old. But it also feels bad when you play, you know, like 20 turns of perfect magic and then there's just one card that negates all of that, right? Right. I think the sweet spot for a format is basically a format where you have to be cognizant of really fast decks, but you also want to try to understand that there's decks that go over the top and can win in like a million turns if you let them survive. And so just having like a diverse format that keeps itself in check is important. Ixalan had the big problem of like who could kill the other person faster and so it just was a race to like the fastest curve every week it went by it felt like decks got faster and faster and then it was just like five turn games all over the place I thought the problem with Ixalan was nobody played it because it was awful well because of this (laughs) (laughs) but you know what I'm saying it's like there has to be checks and balances built into the format from the tempo perspective, or else you're just going to have it run away one way or the other. All right. So that brings us back to decisions have to matter. When you get done with a draft, you want to feel like you won or lost based off of your choices, both in the draft and in the game. Did you get paid off by going into an archetype that has cards other archetypes sharing colors don't want? Awesome. Great. You did a good job on the draft and you got paid off. I want to be able to read the table. I don't want some crazy multicolored thing messing with the color balance and ending up thinking one color's open when it's really not. Playing around sweepers. I think every format should have two sweepers. One, whatever the random, you know, big kaboom is and a pyroclasm type effect. Just enough to keep people honest. Yeah, I think Midnight Hunt did a really good example of decisions matter because there are so many micro decisions throughout the game. A lot of they had to do in the blue-black, do I tap down my three creatures to scry one with my larder zombie, or do I tap down three creatures to ping them with my siege zombie? Every turn, those kind of added up to be like, oh, you should really understand how you're trying to end this game. What's in your deck? Do you need to find specific guards? Do you need to just push damage against your opponent? And so, like, I think Midnight Hunt was a really good example of the type of design it takes to make it feel like your decisions matter. Of course, they kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit when your opponent plays Organ Hoarder into Organ Hoarder into Organ Hoarder. And you're like, well, none of my decisions matter. But from the perspective that you had these, like, various utility cards and they used the same resources. So you had to pick and choose between which ones to use at any given time. I thought that was a great design. And I think sets that have kind of those, like, almost mini games built into different turns and built into even the draft with, like, things like collect them all types of cards and things like that really make it. So you feel like your decisions during the picking, during the gameplay, during deck building even had actual impact on your outcome. I actually think Escape is a really good example of that. I know that a lot of times in Theros stuff just kind of plays itself out. But Escape, you want to manage it from both sides of the table where you're like, hey, I'm willing to let this creature die here just so I can get an extra card in there to make sure that I get this card back. Or I don't want to do this trade that would normally be a good trade because I don't want to enable them to get a card back. Yeah, it's something that I think is like maybe diminishing returns to think about, but is like when you put an enchantment on a creature, 
you're like, okay, if this creature is more likely to die than the other one, maybe I want two cards to go into my graveyard so I can fuel my escape cards a little bit more if it's kind of like not a clear choice of which creature to put in. So it's like cool little micro decisions. The next thing, hand smoothing mechanics. Anything that reasonably helps prevent flutter screw is a great mechanic that I want in a format. Cycling's a classic one, but it really doesn't do as much when you're flooding if the cards aren't powerful enough to want to keep them. Personally, blood is my favorite limited mechanic in the history of ever. It just gave you so much agency over how the games turned out. Yeah, other great smoothing mechanics were the MDFCs, the dual-faced lands were really cool because it gave you a way to put extra lands into your deck and extra spells at the same time, so it was kind of like choose your own adventure. Then there's also a connive, which is the SNC mechanic where you basically draw a card, discard a card, and then if it's a spell, you get to put a plus one, plus one counter on your creatures. That helped you kind of either smooth out your hands or just kind of go all in on a creature, growing it and trying to get there with like a virtuoso. These are cool mechanics in more like recent sets that definitely helped games feel like, okay, uh... I have some decision-making, even though I drew a kind of clunky hand. I can get there. I don't have to instant mulligan. Because sometimes you just mulligan because you're playing 17 lands, 23 spells, and none of those help you fix your hand at all. And you're just like, well, I'm relying on the shuffler here. If you have my luck, that's not a place you want to be. Hey, shuffler, how you doing, buddy? You're going to be no. Oh, <laughs> For example, Theros, I was just playing a draft and like I had a 9-8 split of mana base because you can't do much better in Theros, really. And I think like out of seven games, I had a mole four times because I either started with all lands of one color or all lands of another color and then just like not cheap drops in those colors. And I'm like, there's nothing I could put in my deck in these colors that would reasonably help me solve this problem. It's just like, I have to take this variance and there's nothing I can do about it. That's pretty feels bad after having some sets where you could do things about it. Multicolor cards. This is kind of tied in with mana fixing, but powerful cards that cost three mana of different colors are, in my opinion, bad for a format. That's the kind of variance I hate to run into. When they're rares, it's one thing. When they're on commons, it's another. Someone doesn't get punished for their bad mana base and just plays out four different basics at the start and has access to a bunch of overpowered cards for their cost. I think I like those cards in formats where like fixing isn't plentiful because it really makes you have to not only have the in-game risk decision of like, oh, do I put this in my deck? Sometimes it's going to be a dead card, basically a mulligan. But it also makes you give up probably other solid playables to prioritize fixing. And I think that's a really cool design for the draft portion is when you have to say, okay, I'm going to have more concentration of high power cards in my deck at the cost of having, you know, a more consistent deck. But that means I also have to give up some some very solid picks to prioritize fixing lands, fixing artifacts, whatever. And I think it takes a lot of skill to really know when to do that and know when you should start prioritizing fixing over non-fixing in certain draft formats. And I think it kind of falls apart when, like you said, it's just in a format where people can kind of go crazy off the rails and there's really no way they don't get punished for it. It's a very hard thing from a design perspective to balance that correctly, to reward people who know when to take the calculated risk versus people who just say YOLO, take every card, (laughs) every rainbow (laughs) card they see, jam a five color deck and don't get punished. 
And a lot of that, like you said, has to do with the mana fixing design of this format. But I also think it has a lot to do with, did you design single color cards that could counter these multicolor drops or can even be on the same like playing field as them? If there's too much of a power difference, that's also not so good, right? Like you have to have incentive to play a harder to cast card, but you also don't want it to be like, well, these commons are all so terrible in these one colors that everyone's kind of quote unquote forced to just play five color soup because that's where all the good cards are. I just don't like soup decks. Yeah, they're tilting when they work against you. And it doesn't feel like that rewarding when you play them. It's kind of like meme and it, it's fun in a way, but like it doesn't feel good when you're like, oh, look, I just drew my perfect four colors and got to dump my hand of bombs because it just lined up that way. It's a meme that nobody cares about. It's not like you went, ha ha ha, I cast my five color ridiculous mythic and did whatever. It's just, oh, I either got mana screwed or I didn't. And nobody's having a good time with that. Yeah. Which brings us to mana fixing. There's a very fine line between enough fixing to make playing two colors smooth and making your mana a joke that you don't care about. Kaldheim was actually a great balance because there was a very real cost to taking all the lands you needed, and you could still just get ran over by an aggressive deck by the time you set up. Personally, I think Evolving Wild should just be an evergreen card in every set that doesn't have a similar set like SNC does. I thought Modern Horizons 2 did a good job. I don't know how many people actually played that, but they had this whole cycle of like indestructible artifact tap lands at common, but there was definitely a cost to pick those up because there were some really aggressive like Madness decks and stuff. And it felt like you were willing to take the risk on having slower mana because they like added towards your artifact count, which some decks cared about. And I thought that was a pretty cool way to incentivize like not 100% great fixing, but also kept it in check with decks that could kind of just say, okay, well, I'm going to punish you for having clunky tap land mana and playing five colors. Then that brings us to color balance. Obviously, you'd like a good color balance, but it's not as big a deal as long as everything is viable. THB is a great example because black is far and away the best color, but everyone knows it and it's overdrafted to the point that you can get paid off for being in other colors. Yeah, a good example of how color balance was terrible is AFR, in my opinion. And this kind of goes back to the mana fixing too. I'm going to tie that in to this one. The treasures in red, black... In AFR were obscenely too plentiful. And so it was one of those color pairs where you could just say, okay, I'm going to be red black no matter what draft. And then I'll just pick up every bomb because I'll have enough treasures to play double blue this, double green that. And it just, to me, was like everything that is wrong with mana fixing and color balance and wrapped up in one set. It's really upsetting because we only get limited sets only so so frequently, right? And it's it's super it's such a bummer when you know the next three months are going to be kind of no fun in the limited world <laughs> because it was just something about like color balance was so off. So, do you have any other sets other than Theros that you think are really good examples of color balance? Well, bringing back on AFR, the thing on that is I think that would have played out much better in pod situations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because. Green-white was a solid counter to the red-black deck. And if you have five people fighting over the red-black deck, you're going to have an insane green-white deck, or even a blue deck. I know everyone hated blue, but it was so open, and if everyone else was fighting over black-red, you could just bash their face in because they had a bunch of mediocre decks. Is there any format that isn't better in pod drafting, though? Mm, 
I mean, that would be so ideal. I don't know. I mean, obviously it's the whole convenience component, but I do wish like some of the higher stakes events were in pod, things like the arena open, stuff like that. If they could design a pod setup to play that, that would be so great. I miss playing in pod. It's a time problem. You don't want to have people sitting there staring at the computer, not able to do anything, but they can't walk away. Yeah, that's what double queuing was invented for, right? Yeah, of course. Arena just needs to allow double queuing. That's the fix. All right, that brings us to set mechanic balance. It's a real feels bad when a mechanic doesn't get there. It can end up eliminating a whole slice of the color pie. It's equally as bad when a mechanic is overpowered or adds a ton of luck to it. Like, some people hated die rolling in AFR, but I didn't think it was that bad because it was such a good flavor for the D&D set. And there weren't too many cards that it was a huge deal on. Yeah, it was bad when they got three treasures off their guy. But it wasn't nearly as bad as someone miracling a bonfire that damned off the top of their deck. <laughs> yeah, it's even more impactful when you have guild sets. For example, Guilds of Ravnica or Ravnica Allegiance, like the Slesnia Convoke thing was kind of a dead mechanic. And you're like, okay, well, we went down from five viable decks to four viable decks. Undergrowth was kind of underpowered. It really feels bad when like 20% of the viable decks are just kind of off the table because the mechanic didn't get there. Or like you're in those colors and you see a card that's like built around the mechanic and then you just see another common that's just like doesn't have the mechanic associated with it. And you're like, oh, I'll just jam a bunch of non-synergistic commons in these colors together. And that's a better deck than what's supposed to be the color pairs theme. Which is also just kind of like, well, this is no fun. I don't even have to like try <laughs> to build this deck. It's just I take the good cards, ignore the text. I mean, didn't everyone just play Boros and guilds? Yeah, but that's because Mentor was great. Yeah, it was. So it was an unbalanced mechanic compared to the other ones. Exactly. Strixhaven, that's another one. Everyone just played Silverquill. Yeah. So you have anything else you'd like to bring up that makes a format good or bad? I think we should qualify that this is maybe a little recency bias. I know like as formats get more and more in my rear view, I forget the nuances about them. And there's probably examples that are about five years old that had some really good mechanics, really good balance, really good fixing. I think Amonkhet was I have really good memories of that set, especially when Hour of Devastation came out. But I think Hour of Devastation maybe pushed like the fixing a bit too far and went from like a hyper fast format to like five color soup format overnight, which is a weird transition. I'm just curious if there's like older sets that are also really good examples. It's something I'm going to maybe think about a little bit more, but nothing really to add to the conversation. I think we touched on everything. And I think at the end of the day, it all kind of adds up to like, is the format fun while rewarding decision making? If I had to distill it down to a sentence. Well, that brings us to our question of the week. You're not scared or worried or anything? Uh, I don't think so, but now I am. Now that you asked me that. <laughs> we actually got a wholesome question. Instead of the weird barrage of vaguely sexual questions I normally get sent in, you all know who you are. I always hear Josh talk about Disney. What is your favorite moment there? It's not magic related, but hey, like I said, it's actually a wholesome question instead of some ridiculous thing and oh lord, the things I get sent. So that's pretty easy for me. As an adult, I got to pull the sword from the stone. Let's assume everyone's not familiar with Disney and the sword and the stone setup. What's that about? Oh, so it's similar to the movie with the sword and the stone. You can try to pull it out and it's actually magnetic locked in. So you can't actually pull it out. And then 
every once in a while someone gets to pull it out and then they get to be like whatever for the day. But I used to go almost every day. Great exercise. I live right there. Anyone who's been around me knows I never shut up. So I'd always talk to all the cast members. Most of them knew me by name. And short version, I helped out this crying child. One of the cast members I used to say hi to every day was like, hey, Josh, have you tried pulling the sword out today? I was like, huh, you've seen me try it a ton of times. She's like, yeah, but you're looking extra princely today. I went over and pulled it out. Well, it doesn't actually come all the way out, but you get it pulls out up to a certain point because obviously you can't have a kid pulling out You don't a sword. get to start beheading people after you pull no, out. No, <laughs> Well, there goes the draw for me. And I got a prince for the day certificate. It was pretty awesome. It's just one of those experiences that once you're past, say, 12, you're like, oh, that's never going to happen. You just cross it off your list and then it, being able to do it as an adult was just really cool for me. That is extremely wholesome, and I'm glad you got to experience that, my dude. Why, thank you. Is this also a question for me? It was directed towards me, but if you'd like to say your favorite Disney moment, I'm sure we'd all love to hear that. Yeah, um, basically leaving Disney property when I was like 12 years old and never stepping foot on it again was my favorite Disney moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's all. Thanks, Chris. (laughs) I had to sour up this podcast again. It was getting too good feeling. All right, that brings us to Cool Play of the Week. I don't know how cool this was. For me, it was my favorite thing that happened this week while playing Magic. I was chaining some drafts on MTGO off of my free play points they sent out. Obviously, I've made some misclicks because I haven't used the current interface before. And I misclicked through a lethal, but I had some blockers and was at six with them just having a six power creature out. Their draw, obviously, Zayatora. As every other American does, I bemoaned my problems of my own making sat there for a minute, and then they said go without sacking their guy to kill me. And then I attacked for lethal. Must be nice. Must be nice. It feels even better when they do draw their out and then they just miss it. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, oh, that's luckier than them not drawing that at all. I was like, oh, I think I'm good. What could I possibly die to here? And they're just like, wham, dragon. I'm like, uh-oh. Oh, they just, they're like, their guy, I'm dead. And they did not. I think playing Magic has exposed what my superpower is. You know, I think I'm an X-Men. I think I, I have a mutant power. And I think that mutant power is literally summoning the card that gives my opponent lethal into their hand every time I say it. It's like the Beetlejuice of cards. <laughs> Just like as long as they don't have this exact combination of two cards. Oh, look, they top decked half of that and had the other half. Well, that brings us to Chris's bad beat. Yeah, you know, with Eros Beyond Death back, I've run into, I think, three Dream Trawlers. And so I think just playing against that card is a bad beat, especially when they play an island and then they play a planes and then they start playing card draw and cards that gain life and don't attack. And you're like, I know what's coming. I know what their deck's about. I will say there is some sweetness with this hour where I did beat one of the three Dream Trawlers by doing the old flicker, the dreadful apathy trick where you exile the creature of the dreadful apathy on, and while that's on the stack, you flicker it. Thanks, chat, for helping me with the sequence of that, by the way. You're welcome. Yeah, chat, Josh, whoever. (laughs) And then since it gets flickered, it's not really a target. It just enters the battlefield, and you have to attach it to something, so them giving Dream Trawler hexproof doesn't do anything. And my opponent didn't know giving it hexproof doesn't do anything, and they discarded a real card. And it died anyway, and then they conceded. So I turned this bad beat into a good beat story, I guess. But usually, Dream Trawlers are just bad beats all around. That brings us to the end of the episode. Come check out our totally free Discord where you can get deck decks, pick advice, check out trophy decks, discuss limited, or just chill. 
You can find the Draft Lab on Twitch at J2S Josh, Florida Mun, Icky, Eagle TV, to Jordan, and to Four. Don't forget to check out mtgazone.com for awesome strategy articles by the Draft Lab. Well, that's 46 episodes in, and I am still baffled that Chris has chosen Gatorland over Disney.